So good morning, everyone. It's a good day. It's a good day because today is Soli Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone. If you have your Bible with you, and I always hope you do, let's open up to the book of Romans. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the verses on the screen. Um, if you don't own a Bible, stop by the info table after the service and grab one of these. That's our gift to you because we just want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. Um, and so as you're turning to Romans, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Um, so not only we're going to be in Romans 15 this morning, we're also starting this whole brand new series that uh, I've entitled I Am Is, which sounds weird. I Am Is. Uh, it sounds completely grammatically incorrect and awkward. I am is. Um, what I am refers to is Yahweh, the revealed proper personal name of God. So in Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses, calls him to a specific task. It's like, I want you to go back into Egypt. I want you to confront Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out of captivity, lead them out. And so Moses asked the Lord a question. He says, who shall I say sent me? It's a reasonable one, right? They're going to ask, who, who's been talking to me and who's telling me to do this? And so he asked, who shall I say sent me? And God answered him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. I am has sent you. That's the name of God. I am. Meaning he is. Meaning he just be. He always has been. He is, he always will be, I am. That's the name of God. And so what I'm hoping that we can do actually between now and Easter is that we're going to spend some time getting to know who I am is. We're going to spend these next several weeks discussing who is God and what is he like. Now, before we talk about God, let's talk about me. <laughs> I, I, I don't float. I, 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 you people that can float, good for you, y'all arrogant floaters. Um, I don't float. I, apparently, I'm too big-boned and way too much, and I don't displace enough water. So whether I'm in a pool or whether I'm in the ocean, man, I am just sink. It's just how it is with this guy. And on my bucket list, one of the items on my bucket list uh, is to when they get to go to Israel. Because uh, I actually think it would be really neat to walk around where Jesus walked and to be in places where Jesus taught and miracles were performed. And more than anything, go to the place where Jesus gave his life for me. Like what an am amazing place that, that would be and to be there. Uh, and while I, if I ever do get to go to Israel, uh, one of the things I'd like to do while I'm there is visit the Dead Sea. Because apparently even someone like me can float on the Dead Sea. Uh, and the reason why is that the waters of the Dead Sea are the saltiest waters on planet Earth. Uh, 
uh, there's this extreme high concentration of dissolved mineral salts. So much so that it is the densest water on on earth. So it makes it really easy for for our bodies to be buoyed. Our our body weighs less than the density of the water of the Dead Sea. So it gives our bodies buoyancy, and it makes it easy for us to float. So there is such a thing as DeadSea.com. I found it, and I read this on, on the site. It says, In the Dead Sea, the water is so dense, you float easily even to the point that it's hard to stand on your two feet. The the minute your feet and legs are in the water, you feel as if you're being pushed up. So just imagine you're like on the shore and you're walking on there. And as soon as you start getting in there, you start feeling this pressure on you to lift you off like the bottom of the, the sea there. Just lay back and allow your body to float in the Dead Sea. This is a relaxing experience, relieving you of stress and allowing your body to just rest. That sounds nice. That sounds nice. To not have to worry about sinking, to not have to worry about treading water and just lay back and float and relax, that sounds pretty nice. Well, spiritually, Most of us spend most of the day sinking. Most of us are exhausted every day because we're treading water every day just to try to keep our head above the water. The problem is that the waters that we swim in every day aren't dense enough. Christian faith requires, if we want our faith to float, if we ourselves want to float, Christian faith requires that the waters that we swim in each and every day to be dense dense with the truth of who God truly is. So A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite theologians and writers, he wrote this, says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Which is just a really eloquent way of saying that the reason, the very reason that we feel like we're sinking constantly every day, that we're sinking in our fears and we're sinking in our worries and we're sinking in our anxieties. The reason that's the case is because our thoughts and our beliefs about God are wanting. There's a, a deficiency about who we believe God is or maybe to what degree do we believe him to be the way that he is. That Our thoughts and our beliefs about God are awfully pedestrian, They're kind of superficial and shallow and not nearly as stout and robust as they as it should be. So if we would give ourselves over to the study of God that we may know him more fully as he really is, as we would give ourselves over to the study of God that we may know him as accurately as possible, closely resembling or, or being exactly as he is described in the Bible, we will find that our lives are buoyed. The better we know God truly, we'll still face problems, we'll still have heartache, 
We'll still have issues in our life. But the more, the better we know God, we will find that the things of the world will grow strangely dim, as the old hymn would say. We will find ourselves floating on this water of truth that empowers us and brings peace and joy and hope to our lives. So to help us to be people who float, to help us to be buoyed, we're going to spend the next two months better knowing who I am is. We're going to devote ourselves to that, and we're going to look at various attributes of God, characteristics of God, like mysteries about God. And today, we're looking at what is one of the most profound and extraordinary truths that there is about God, and that is that I am is triune, which is a reference to the Trinity. So here's another A.W. Tozer quote. He, He wrote, The doctrine of the Trinity. So what the Bible teaches about the Trinity is truth for the heart. Like it messes with our head because it stretches our intellect and our brain matter, right, to full capacity. But at the end of the day, it's actually not so much for our intellect as much as it is for our heart. The truth of the Trinity, that uh, that I am is triune, three in one, that truth makes the waters that we swim in denser. That truth means that God is way more amazing and fantastic than we could ever imagine. And then if that's true, what that means is that now we can live with a confidence. If, if that is true about who God is, I can live with a confidence if I trust him that he is actually bigger than my problems and my trials and my frustrations and my heartache and all of my dilemmas. If God is, in fact, triune, three in one, then folks, all of us should be striving to live solely Deo Gloria for the glory of this God alone. So what I hope we're going to do here as we walk just down a few verses in Romans 15 is to just glean a little bit about who I am is. So let's just, we're going to start here in verse 14. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to Romans, to Christians who make up the church in the city of Rome. He's writing to them, and in verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So the reputation of these believers in Rome is stout, it's stellar, right? They have good morals, they, they have a good, solid proficiency of the Bible, and they're on mission, right? They're teaching, they're, they're making disciples, And we should hope that all of us would have the same reputation. We'd hope that that would be true of all of us, right? That would be a good thing. Paul continues in verse 15, but he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So these believers in Rome, they're the real deal, but they need some reminders. That's okay. This is true of all believers. All believers, no matter how much we know, 
no matter how much we've matured, no matter how much we live for the glory of God, we're always in constant need of good reminders. So this is a good thing that Paul is doing for them. And then in verse 15, he actually says that the reason that he offers such a bold reminder to them is because of the grace given to him by God, and he continues in verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus. He says, speaks boldly reminders to them, to them because of the grace he's received to be a minister of Christ Jesus. So the word minister simply means servant. That's all the word means, servant. Okay? We're all servants. All of us in this room are servants. All of us in this room are ministers. The question is, what are we servants of? The question is, what is it that we minister to or minister about? Who or what is it that we serve? By nature, we are all born servants, servants of sin. We're enslaved by sin to sin. That's the captivity that we're born into. But then by God's grace, he offers to free us out of that bondage, just like he did with Moses and the Israelites way back in the book of Exodus. They were in bondage, so he raised up Moses, a deliverer, to lead them out. So we move into the New Testament, and God raises up a new deliverer, Jesus Christ, and he says, I will offer you freedom from that servant. So you no longer have to be mastered by sin, and I will free you to such a degree that you now get to serve a much better master, Jesus. All right, that's good. And that is all by the grace of God. Paul continues. He says in verse 16, he says, He's a minister of Jesus, so he's a servant of Jesus, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So the word gospel means good news. So what Paul is saying is that he serves Jesus by serving the good news of God to Gentiles. Gentiles is just a word that means anyone who is not a Jew. So people are either Jews or Gentiles. So if you're not a Jew, guess what you are? A Gentile, all right? So back then in the first century, all the other apostles were apostles to the Jews. Paul specifically was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jew world. And he tells us in verse 16 the goal of his ministry. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here Paul is comparing his work, right? He's like a priestly service. He's he's in the service of the gospel and he's offering Gentiles that they may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's comparing his work to that of an Old Testament priest. So in the, in the Old Testament, a priest would bring a, a sacrifice, a gift, an offering, and present it to God. In that same sense, he's using that analogy in comparison. He's like, hey, I have an offering that I bring to God, and I'm bringing these Gentiles, these non-believers that now are sanctified, and right there it says, by the Holy Spirit. So the word sanctified means to be made holy. So there's two aspects of that word, holy or to be sanctified. The first refers to belonging, 
To be holy or to be sanctified means to be set apart as belonging to God. The other part of that word refers to living a life that reflects belonging to God. So to be holy or sanctified means that I'm growing in obedience to God. I'm growing as a faithful follower. I'm growing in godliness and righteousness, right? So these non-believers who were Gentiles are converted, and now the Holy Spirit is at work in them, making them holy. They're not belonging to the Lord, and they're walking in obedience, right? Well, then he says in verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So here Paul, he is proud. He's proud of the work that he gets to be part of, but not because of personal achievement, but because he is, as that verse says, in Christ. Which is a way of saying that it's Jesus who is at work in him and through him in order to accomplish the things that are accomplished. It's Jesus who does the work. So what Paul is saying when he says that in Christ, he's giving all credit to Jesus as the one who gets it done. And it's not just that because he's in Christ that the work gets done. The specific work that gets done is, right, it says in verse 17, work for God. So it's even the very fact that Jesus is at work in him and through him that he even gets to work for God. And then in verse 18, I know this is lightning round. I'm going somewhere with all this. Just bear with me. A lot of content here. In verse 18, Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience. So real quick, what that means is that Paul is thrilled that Jesus is the one who is doing the work so that non-believers may be transformed into people who are obedient to God. So in that verse, he's giving all credit to Jesus, right? It's Jesus who's bringing people to obedience. In the last verse, verse 19, Paul says that all this takes place by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So wherever he goes, this is simply what he's saying. Wherever I have gone to to serve the gospel, to serve Jesus, to work for God, wherever I've gone, my ministry has been successful because of the Holy Spirit. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working wonders and miracles. It is because of that that I'm successful, that I can fulfill the ministry. And specifically in verse 19, it says, able to serve the gospel of Christ. All right. Now we can take a break. If you're paying attention to everything that I just reviewed and summarized there, just in verses 14 through 19. Does that not sound awfully contradicting? There's a lot of contradiction in there, is there not? I mean, in verse 16, Paul says he's a minister of the gospel of God. But in verse 19, he says he's a minister of the gospel of Christ. Well, which is it? Is it the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ? 
In verse 16, Paul says that he serves Jesus. In verse 17, he says he works for God. Which is it? Is it Jesus or God? In verse 18, Paul says that it's Jesus who accomplishes the work through him. But in verse 19, he says that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Is it Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit? In verse 16, Paul says that it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies people and causes them to belong to God and live a holy life in obedience to God. But in verse 18, he says that it's Jesus who does that. Which is it? So, I mean, you kind of just have to assume. You have to throw in a bless your heart, Paul, here. Because the, the weariness of being the apostle to the Gentiles clearly has wearied him to the point that he can't even keep a consistent thought. I mean, here's three and a half sentences. Three and a half sentences with a minimum of four contradictions, it would seem. Bless his heart. He's just tired. And the thing is that those would, in fact, all be contradictions, if not for one extremely important fact. God is triune. I tell you, if that is not true, if the Trinity, like that God is one, but he's three, that he's like three in one, if that is not true, Paul is a stark raving lunatic. The Bible is completely unreadable and it self-contradicts from cover to cover. If it's not true, the Bible cannot be read and certainly cannot be trusted for anything. So when I say that, that God is triune, I'm clearly referring to the Trinity or that doctrine, that teaching of the Bible that, of the Trinity. And I'm going to explain the Trinity by sharing what is our Anthem Church statement of belief upon the Trinity, which I believe will be up on the screen, which says, We believe in the Trinity, the triunity of God. There is but one God, but he eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is fully God, each sharing the same essence, substance, nature, will, and glory, and each possessing all of the same divine attributes. Each member of the Godhead is distinct from the other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. All three always work together in harmonious, loving unison to accomplish all of God's glorious purposes. Three distinct persons, each fully God, but one and only one God. This is who I am is. Profound mystery kind of sort of makes sense when you just see it on paper. But if you really try to sit back and noodle your way through what that is like, we hit a brick wall. It, it escapes our, our mind and our ability to, to comprehend. We can't even imagine it, let alone comprehend it. So it's kind of like this. Um, there, there's a, a visual phenomenon uh, that's just true of all of us with eyes. Um, that there's some things that you can see in your peripheral 
but you can't see when you look at it dead on. So if you've ever noticed, if you're ever like lying on your back at night and you're like admiring the, the stars, the night sky, and you're looking at this one star, and oh, that's a cool star, and out of the side, right, the periphery, you kind of see this other one, and you turn to look at it, and when you do, it vanishes. Like, where'd it go? Well, the reason that's the case is because of how the cones and rods in our, works, in our eyes work and how they engage with light and amounts of light and so forth. Um, that's how the Trinity is. Like, like you, we could only, spiritually speaking, see it peripherally. But then we turn like, to like, gaze upon it and to like, get a, a clear view of it, and it starts to escape us. And the reason why is that spiritually we lack the cones and the rods, spiritually speaking, to be able to really see the Trinity for who the triune God is. Isaiah 46.9 does shed a little bit of light on why we can't understand the Trinity. Isaiah 46.9 says, Remember the former, thing, former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The reason the Trinity escapes us is because there is no thing like God. There is nothing else in the universe for us to draw upon for comparison or analogy because there's nothing else in all the universe that is triune. There's nothing that we see or engage with physically, tangibly, visibly here that is triune. God exists in a form that is completely foreign and alien to everything that we know here on earth. So it's because we have nothing to compare it to that it's hard to understand. Right? Now, here's something to understand. What you got to understand is that understanding the Trinity, while not possible, understanding the Trinity is truth. And truth does not require to be understood in order to, for it to be truth. Truth is truth whether or not we understand it or to what degree we understand it. The question for us today isn't, do I understand the Trinity? The question is, do I believe it? That's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe the Trinity? Do you believe that God is triune? So, here are the five major aspects of the Trinity. Number one, there is one God. There is only one God. Christianity is monotheistic. We don't believe in multiple gods. There is one and only one God. Number two, that one God exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Number three, each of these divine personages is fully God in every way. There's not lesser gods or anything. They're equally all God. Number four, each is distinct from the other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct from one another. And number five, they always work in unity. So, clearly, don't have time to unpack all of those five today. So, real quick, here's what I want to do. I just want to look at that last one. 
that God works always in unity, that the three members of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, always work together in unity. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word one there does not tell us how many gods there are. It does not say there is one God. What it says is the Lord is one. That word is not referring to number. That that word is referring to unity. The Hebrew word from which we translate our word one in that verse is the Hebrew word echad. Say it. (laughs) Echad. Cough it up. Yeah, get it, get it all out. It's that time of the year. We got plenty of it, right? <laughs> all right, for you grammar, geeky people, language people, that is known as a compound unity noun. What does that mean? Let me, let me explain what that means. The same word, echad, is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That word first in that verse is that word echad. There was one day, right? That, that, that first day, that one day, it consisted of night right, and light, of evening and morning, right? compound unity, more than one thing being one. You understand? That same word is also used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Echad. It's the same word there. More than one person becoming one, right? compound unity. That's how the word is being used in Deuteronomy 6.4. There is a plurality of God, right? There's more to him. He is three, but the three are one. They are united in purpose and in glory. The Lord is one. Follow? Folks, that brings us back to Romans 15. That explains why there is no contradiction in Romans 15. It's because of that that Paul can say that he's a minister of the gospel of God and of the gospel of Christ. It is because of that reality, the unity, the triunity of God, that Paul can say, hey, I serve Jesus. I serve God the Son, and guess what? I also work for God the Father. It is because of that reality that Paul can say, it's Jesus who accomplishes all things in me and through me, and at the same time, it's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is because of that that Paul can say that it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies people and sets them apart as belonging to God and causing them to mature into people who follow after God's way, ways and at the same time say, it's Jesus who does it. There's no contradiction in that whatsoever. All of that is true because all of it is done by triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit always work together in harmonious, loving unison to accomplish 
all of God's glorious purposes. All three. All three members of the Godhead are always working together to bring about all of God's purposes. Creation. Scriptures tell us God the Father spoke. Jesus is the Word, the creative agent. In in Genesis 1, it says that the Holy Spirit was hovering, maneuvering over creation, of the waters, right, to say over creation itself. All three were involved in creation. Or how about the incarnation of Christ? Well, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Well, the son humbled himself and stepped off his throne and actually came. It was the power of the Holy Spirit upon Mary who caused the conception to take place. Jesus' baptism. God the Father spoke. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. It was the son who was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. What about the crucifixion? The son goes to the cross where there he bore our guilt, our shame, where he took your sin and my sin upon his shoulders. He took the punishment that we deserve on account of our sin. The Father then poured wrath and judgment upon the Son on account of our sin. And the Holy Spirit indwelling the Son. The Holy Spirit filling the Son. The Holy Spirit led him there. The Holy Spirit was comforting him there. And the resurrection, Scripture gives credit to all three for the resurrection. God the Father raised the Son. The Son raised Himself, and it was all by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 1. This is how all of this works. I am is triune. Three in one. One God in three persons, all, always working in collective unison to bring about God's glorious purposes, and that includes you and me. We are part of God's purposes. God loves you. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of our triune God. We are loved by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he to whom nothing compares... The God to whom nothing compares offers us a gift to which nothing compares. His grace and abundant life and eternal life, forgiveness of sins and salvation. He offers you an incomparable gift. And that God who is like unsearchable, that God who defies explanation and imagination, he says, I invite you to know me. He says, I want you to know me, and we can know him relationally, personally, deeply, profoundly. The God who is himself holy, he offers to sanctify us. He offers to make us holy. He offers us to make us into a people who belong to him and who live for the sake of his glory and loving, glorious obedience. The God who is three in one, he makes this promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will give you all the daily bread that you need, and I will fill you with hope and with joy and with peace. 
And that God to whom all glory belongs, he says this guarantee, I will usher you into my kingdom. That work that I begin in you, I will bring to fruition. And on that day, I will usher you into my kingdom. And you will share in my infinite, eternal glories. So for us, what does that take to receive? Well, confess your sin to the Father. Come clean. He knows. He loves you anyway. He knows. So you confess your sin, your wrongdoing, your failures to the Father. You confess and you repent. You turn away from that. Turn to him. You believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Son of God. You believe in the Son and his crucifixion and his sacrifice on your account for your eternal good on the cross. You believe in him, on what he did on the cross, and then that he was raised from the dead on the third day. You believe and you give your life to follow him, and you listen to the Holy Spirit. You submit your life to living under the conviction of the Holy Spirit who comforts, who guides, who tells truth, who reveals sin and tells you which way to go. And so, folks, if we confess our sin to the Father and we believe in the Son and we listen to the Holy Spirit, we can know that from this day until every other day that follows from here until forever, we will forever know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are for us, they're with us, they're not against us, they're working in us, and they're working through us. That is truth that denses up the waters. That is truth that causes us to float even when life and its fears and its worries would tempt us to sink. The doctrine of the Trinity is truth for the heart. Now, if you were to survey all the other religions and all of their gods, and I mean this with, honestly, no disrespect. I'm just really being honest. I say this humbly. If you survey all the gods of all the other religions, what you will find is that their gods are simply beings made in the image of man. They're flawed characters with some superpowers. They're really comic book characters, heroes and villains. It's really all the gods of other religions. But that is not the case with the one and the only, the true living God. I am is unfair. Fathomable. I am does not fit into any of our worldly categories. I am comes from a different realm. I am exists in a form that we can't even comprehend, nor can we imagine. I am is triune. And that truth should fill us with humility. That as we begin to just contemplate the three in oneness of God. It should drive us to our knees as we sense the infinite disparity between our smallness and his grandeur, right? And it should fill us with awe. It should fill us with with a desire to worship joyful, loud, excellent worship of such a God that you are three in one. What does that mean? You are amazing and grand and majestic. And it should fill us with confidence. It should fill us with confidence. Many of us feel like we're sinking all day long because our thoughts of God are too small. 
And if we would just give ourselves to knowing God really as he is, not just thinking more of him, but thinking sufficiently of who he is, folks, we will see that the things of this world will grow strangely dim. It causes us to float. So in Romans 15, 16, Paul basically is saying that the Father The Son and the Holy Spirit are all at work so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. The Trinity is at work that we may be acceptable to God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at work bringing grace to bear upon us for the forgiveness of sins, like to wash us clean. The Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father are all together at work in us, sanctifying us that we may belong to him and to him forever. The Trinity is at work in his people that we may live a life that is for his glory, holy, godly, righteous, faithful to the Lord. The Trinity is at work. God is at work. What is our role? Believe. Believe, trust him, and give yourself to the pursuit of knowing him better, of knowing him more, of knowing him more truly and more deeply. So who do you believe God to be? And I would say that that's not a question that we can just simply quickly throw an answer at. I would invite you all today, this week, the rest of your life to devote your life to the pursuit and the answering of that question. Who do you believe God to be? He loves you. He invites you to know him. And he invites you into a work and a plan that is heavenly and glorious and eternal to live in for his glory and to share in his glory forever and ever. Here again is our Anthem Church statement of belief. We believe in the Trinity, the triunity of God. There is but one God, but he eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is fully God each sharing the same substance, essence, substance, nature, will, and glory, and each possessing all of the same divine attributes. Each member of the Godhead is distinct from the other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. All three always work together in harmonious, loving unison to accomplish all of God's glorious purposes. Three Distinct persons, one God, three distinct persons, each fully God, but one and only one God. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes and to meditate upon that. And our praise team is going to come and lead us in a closing song. Who do you believe God to be? Lord, Father, we, we live in 
a desperate world in desperate times where there's chaos and foolishness and there's sin and there's mayhem and there's evil and there's darkness. Lord, we, we live in bodies that fail us, that get broken and get sick. Lord, we live next to people who hurt us and harm us and sometimes we're those people that are hurting and harming. And Lord, we desperately need a cure and a fix and a remedy. Where we're seemingly drowning in loneliness and depression and anxiety and stress and in fear. We need a rescue. And I'm grateful that I can humbly and honestly say that you are that remedy and that rescue. And that you are not just kind of sort of a God, just barely kind of sort of good enough to overcome and overwhelm our problems, Lord, but you are a conquering God who is infinitely greater than any trouble and heartache that we will ever face And it couldn't be any other way because, God, you are three in one. You are greater than we can imagine, more majestic than our mind allows us to even begin to believe. But, Lord, in faith, we believe this to be true, that you are the great I am. You are Yahweh. You are Lord of all. You are Father, you are Son, you are Holy Spirit. The Godhead all working together to fulfill your glorious will and purposes for your glory and for our good. And so I pray now, Lord, that if there's any in this room who's never embraced the gospel of the triune and gracious God, I pray that you would, Lord, open their eyes now and that a person would say yes to you, that they would confess their sin to you, believe in the Son and listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would live from this day into eternity knowing that you are the great I Am, our triune God. In Jesus' name, amen.